Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Hey there and welcome to episode 51. I'm recording this on Thursday the 15th of April. We're excited about a bit of release from lockdown in the UK, with cafes and bars open if they have outdoor seating, and you can meet in groups of six outside. So some rather chilly social life is restarting. In today's episode, I'm talking to Jamie Butterworth, a partner at Circularity Capital based in Scotland. Circularity Capital helps large investors, including financial institutions, global corporations and family offices, to invest in circular businesses, which can gain competitive advantage by breaking the link between resource use and business success. Circularity Capital invests in circular businesses and startups like ZigZag, a multi-award winning software as a service platform enabling retailers to reduce the costs and waste associated with e-commerce returns and at the same time improving and simplifying the customer returns experience and speeding up time to refund. Winnow, which develops technology to help chefs measure, monitor and design out food waste. Shark Solutions, the market leader in the production of recycled PVB, a high-margin, sustainable, non-toxic, recyclable material with valuable technical properties. And Grover, a highly flexible monthly subscription service for everyday devices like laptops, smartphones, tablets and digital cameras operating in Germany. I'm going to do a quick bit of jargon busting ahead of the conversation. We talk a bit about externalities. If you're not familiar with that term, I should explain. The IMF defines economic externalities as what happens when prices don't fully capture costs. When economic decisions we make to to produce, consume or invest in something indirectly affects those not involved in the transaction. Externalities can be positive or negative and the negative effects may cause problems for people and planet. An example is greenhouse gas emissions, where companies and individuals are creating emissions, but society and nature is suffering the the consequences. We also use a financial term, capex, which is short for capital expenditure. Capex is money that a company spends to buy, repair, update or improve a fixed asset, such as a building, a business or equipment. Jamie tells us why there's a need for specialist investment in circular businesses and what specific financial challenges those businesses have, how investors evaluate circular business models and what's happening as more investors become aware that we're in a race to solve the climate and biodiversity crises. Jamie also explains Circularity Capital's approach to working out what to invest in through its Unintended Consequences paper. 
Have a listen to the interview and I'll catch up with you at the end with my key takeaways. Jamie Butterworth is a member of the Investment Committee and partner at Circularity Capital, a specialist private equity firm which targets growth stage investments in businesses enabling the circular economy. I first came across Jamie in his former role as CEO and part of the founding team of the Ella MacArthur Foundation. Jamie, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. And where are you joining us from this morning? Thanks, Catherine. I'm joining you from Edinburgh in Scotland today. So let's start with a big question first, Jamie. Why is there a need for organisations like Circularity Capital in the first place? In other words, why do circular businesses need specialist investors? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. So uh, I would take this from two angles. So uh, one of them is the need to be able to improve the flow of capital from asset owners like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, etc., into the circular economy by providing them uh, products um, which meet their requirements. And the second is providing the businesses, the SMEs, coming up with the innovative solutions, business models and approaches that will accelerate the circular economy, um, the right kind of investment and an investor who understands the specific needs and requirements of their business. Um, so if I start off with that, um, we can say certainly that circular businesses often have certain characteristics particular to them. So if we take just one example, if we look at the inner loops of the circular economy where we move away from selling product to selling the performance of a product or, or product as a service, we very often then need to uh, finance that asset. So if we're a company and we're moving away from selling a product to a customer and getting paid for it there and then, and renting that product or leasing that product to a customer so that we can get it back at the end of one use cycle and redeploy it, we will, for example, need to find a way to finance that asset. Um, and that then changes the company itself. So we need to be able to work out how to access the debt market. We may need to educate the debt provider if this is an innovative new product. We may also need to put into place different metrics or KPIs in management reporting to understand how that business works. And it may change even the valuation of the business itself, for example. So that would just be one example of where a specialist investor can immediately on meeting a management team kind of understand more about how the business works, ask the right questions, and ultimately, if they do end up investing in that company, um, provide more relevant support and a more relevant network to them to connect them into to help them to grow. Mm. And then on the other side, from the kind of capital or asset owner perspective, um, there's been a huge increase in uh, people interested in investing in the circular economy, but they require a way to be able to do that, um, which meets their kind of risk profile. So the job of um, a manager like ourselves is to go into the market and look at lots and lots of businesses in the circular economy and start to build a picture of the attractive and unattractive characteristics of these types of company what's investable, what's not, what are the growth rates, etc., and then build a diversified portfolio of these types of company so that we can enable the big asset owners to invest in this um, area of the economy. Yeah, thanks. That, that explains it well. And I'm just thinking back to a conversation I had last night um, with somebody in Canada, and we were talking about a business that recycles um, disposable chopsticks 
into, I think it was uh, furniture or something like that. Um, but we were talking about the fact that that wasn't um, kind of circular for the long term because you're just creating another um, recycling problem, you know, when the furniture's f finished being using. And I was sort of saying, and, and there's a risk because at the moment they might be getting those chopsticks for free as a, as a raw material or even being paid to take them away. Um, but what if the government in Canada legislates and either puts a tax on single-use packaging and, and chopsticks or bans them altogether? Um, you know, so it's kind of thinking through the for the for this new business model of circularity. Um, you know, whilst it might look profitable now, what are the risks long term? And I guess that's all part of what you have to think about and 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 see from the perspective of the investors as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think regulation and um, sort of legislation is something which is absolutely key. Um, I think one of the interesting things is those kind of very outer loop models tend to be more prone to some of the legislative changes. The kind of higher asset resource utilization at a component or very pure material level um, tend to be more insulated from that. But it, it, that is certainly a factor that investors need to take into account. Yeah, thank you. That's 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 a um, a great point to make because we keep talking in circular economy um, circles, if you like, and uh, and you know trying to um, convince people that all the values in the in inner loops and uh, it's about much more than recycling. And yet, still, most of the initiatives that I see in the press are to do with either you know creating a a raw material out of something that you know that's that's semi-recycled. Um, but isn't necessarily re recyclable again, or creating a product from um, recycled material. And again, you can't see then what happens. It's, you know, it's not a, a perpetual loop, is it? Um, mm -hmm. So are there, are there any other financial challenges that apply to circular businesses um, that, are, you know, that you'd like to um, expand on? Yeah, well, I think you've given, I mean, you've given one example um, uh, there for if you take um, the kind of outer loops um, you can face issues around the correlation of the output of what it is that you're processing, for example, with other commodities. So a lot of uh, kind of recycling um, businesses focus on taking kind of mixed feedstock, processing those in a high capex plant, and then producing something which is competing uh, with, for example, the price of uh, virgin or crude um, oil, for example. Uh, so that would be another thing that an investor would need to, to look at and take into account. Um, and, for example, again, leads towards looking for opportunities where you tend to have a, a differentiated output or a kind of higher margin product output. Um, so there are quite a few specifics. And as I say, by if you take one of those areas, like, for example, you take uh, companies focusing on recycling or, as we would call them, product from waste companies and you look at the product outputs and you compare many many of the same kind of companies that's what then allows you to look at the kind of attractive or, or unattractive characteristics and start to build up a framework for what is interesting to invest in. Mm, yeah and that reminds me of a story I heard a few years ago I think I was um, doing a MOOC on circular packaging at TU Delft and they were telling a story about um, plastic bottle recycling and um, there was a company in the UK you'll probably know the name of it I can't remember now um, based in London who developed a recycling process for some particularly tricky plastic bottles and um, 
the uh, petrochemical supplier decided to change the formulation and put an additive in that, that then prevented that being recycled. And so the business model of the company was just, you know, blown, blown apart. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it was, it was shocking to hear that, because you assume that was done deliberately to prevent the recycling and, and continue the supply of virgin raw materials from fossil inputs. Um, but it just shows that you know something something that was running quite successfully was still very vulnerable, um, and uh, to, to to kind of um, influences outside its control. So um, I'm interested to understand more about how investors are evaluating circular business models and whether that's starting to change as climate and biodiversity risk are being factored into more investment portfolios. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think first and foremost, um, many circular business models, if deployed correctly, will create more value than linear economy business models because we're able to improve margin, for example, by using products more than once, improve asset utilization, uh, use things more than once, etc. Um, and also uh, cascade things for second use lives. So we can create more value. We'll come on to a few examples of businesses that are creating a lot of value and growing quickly within the circular economy and kind of how they are doing that. So from an investor's perspective, uh, it's important, I think, to say first and foremost that there are businesses out there that are decoupling their growth from resource constraints and they're growing faster. They're becoming more profitable with higher margins than their linear counterparts. So that's one reason for investors to be interested. The second is that we are seeing a wave of a kind of demand and interest that is disrupting the traditional investment ecosystem. And if I kind of talk a little bit about how that's happened, I think initially we've had ethical or responsible investment where certain investors, for example, in the UK, like the Church of England, have identified that it's inconsistent with their values to be investing in certain um, stocks like, for example, arms, tobacco, etc. So they would um, deliberately preclude or exclude those investments from their portfolios. Then you've had a, a kind of compliance drive to improve governance, sustainability reporting and risk, and also kind of social risk, the kind of compliance drive. But what you've now got is an increasing number of investors saying that they want to achieve a financial return alongside a measurable non-financial impact and very often linking that to big societal challenges. So one of the big shifts is to say, for example, take the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We want to invest in things which give us a financial return and which help to address and contribute to one of those SD, one or more SDGs. And that's a huge shift. Um, and the amount of capital within that sector of the financial system is growing year by year. And I think the circular economy is an interesting framework for investors interested in that area where you tend to be able to deliver an attractive financial return alongside this measurable impact. Um, the, there's another thing that's happened very recently, which is the uh, European um, framework around sustainability disclosure for financial firms. And that's going to ratchet things up even further. So you've got part demand from investors saying we want more of this product and you've also got a stick from legislation and compliance making this um, 
making people report more, which is also leading to more insight into this area. Mm. And what do you think about the um, compliance and regulation appetite for um, you know, greener taxes and more carrot and stick around, say, taxing the use of virgin resources, taxing waste and pollution more heavily to kind of move towards extended producer responsibility? Are you getting any signals that um, investors would like that to kind of, um, you know, um, level the playing field more in favour of more sustainable businesses? Are you getting the feeling that governments are moving towards that? Um, so I think a couple, couple of things. So one is this, the main focus at the moment in financial markets focuses on um, kind of compliance around ESG and also more transparency around what's being reported, in particular, for example, um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's more and more interest as well about biodiversity with a view that uh, just looking at carbon is too simplistic and ultimately all of the value creation activities that we uh, use today have an impact on biodiversity as well. So kind of an example of the complexity mm. of what companies are looking to report. So that that is being driven mainly, I would say, by a kind of compliance and also reporting side. I think quite separately is the debate around the pricing of externalities into the system. So, for example, the price of carbon. Um, and I think there is a, a growing awareness that there are these environmental externalities, whether it's clean water or clean air, et cetera, which currently aren't factored into the system. I think that the debate around that is probably most advanced in Europe than North America and then rest of world. But I think it's still quite a long way away from being in kind of general consciousness and something that will be acted on, albeit the carbon price obviously is more advanced than, than the rest. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And it, it, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, investors and businesses are starting to maybe, you know, although it seems counterintuitive for businesses to push for this, um, but it does help level the playing field, um, you know, this kind of um, pricing in of externalities and, and those businesses that see the future as being circular, um, you know, should be keen to, to encourage that, that kind of um, legislation. And um, what about investor appetite for funding um, R&D and so on for new materials and things? Is, is that starting to change as well? Yeah, so I think that um, if we look at the life cycle of an early stage company, um, traditionally the initial phase of their development is this kind of seed stage where they tend to get invested through uh, what, what's often called a kind of friends family round and or university spin out etc grants to initially get the company up and running it then tends to go through the kind of venture life cycle mm -hmm. where the business has a proposition but often they don't have kind of proven commercial traction so they're looking to get the technology to a point where they can prove it works and that there will be customer demand for this particular proposition, for example. Um, and that stage can be quite difficult for companies to fund because for investors, they're interested in de-risking the investment. So seeing commercial traction is, is important. Um, and there is quite a healthy ecosystem of kind of corporate venture funds as well that are playing into that with a specific interest in different technologies or materials, for example. So you have players like 
uh, Henkel's corporate venture arm, who are particularly interested in material innovation, but there are many of, of such players. Um, so I think that um, it will continue to be challenging for earlier stage companies to kind of get through that initial period. There are quite a few programs now, uh, particularly in Europe, around um, providing funding and input for early stage SMEs in the circular economy um, to help them support them through that stage. Mm, yeah, and that's probably where we could do with more um, government support as well, isn't it, for all, all the research that's needed behind those new materials. Um, and so when we talked before the podcast, you mentioned the um, circularity capital investment appraisal process, including the unintended consequences paper. So how do you make sure the business is, is going to do more good and not a, not a bit less bad? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so that, that's part of a kind of theory of change, effectively, the unintended consequences um, part. And what we look at before making any investment is um, consistency with this kind of theory of change. So if we're looking at a company, we want to understand how their product, solution, service or business model will accelerate the transition towards the circular economy. Mm -hmm. So typically, initially, we are looking at what business as usual is, what the difference is with this particular business model, what the anticipated impact would be, uh, how we would evaluate that impact and kind of baseline it, um, and then also whether there are any potential unintended consequences. Um, and I think I mentioned when we spoke previously that um, whilst the circular economy is an incredibly powerful framework, if applied right for decoupling the kind of economic growth from resource constraints, um, it isn't a slam dunk that every single circular business model is going to have a positive output. So to use a kind of extreme example, um, we wouldn't be interested in investing in a company that was remanufacturing oil rig drilling equipment, um, which would probably reduce the amount of energy required to build oil drilling equipment, but ultimately may end up with improving the efficiency and output of fossil fuel extraction, which if we were to measure it at a kind of systems level would then have a negative impact from a sustainability perspective. So that's an extreme example. Um, but even within business models that appear very circular, it's really important to look at any potential unintended consequences, kind of understand those before the point of investment. Yeah, that's, and I really like the, um, the example. Um, which is uh, probably less contentious than the ones I usually use of the <laughs> of the ride hailing apps and so on, and uh, you know trying to be careful not to name too many names. But yeah, I think um, as um, circularity is getting into the kind of um, business consciousness, let's say, rather than public consciousness, a bit more, um, I'm starting to see things that are, you know you you kind of um, judge as circular wash and. Um, uh, I saw an example the other day, I won't, I won't name the company, um, but they were talking about a new uh, fabric they they were using for sports shoes um, made from leather offcut, so you're kind of thinking, good so far, but then blended with synthetic material. Um, so they were effectively just using the leather offcuts from their own factory floor to save them some money, and yet creating another material that it wasn't obvious how that was going to be recycled, and it was, you know, blending... Um, 
what we call biological um, nutrients and, and technical nutrients. So, um, you know, natu natural things and man-made things. Um, so, um, moving on to, because we've talked a bit about um, uh, investor values and, and so on and how those are changing. And um, thinking about your personal or company values, Jamie, which one would you like to share with people and why do you think it's important? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. And the one that comes to mind um, is transparency, kind of integrity and transparency, I'd say. But transparency is really key. Um, doesn't sound like the most exciting value, but it's crucial in what we are doing here in terms of investing in this part of the economy. And the reason that I would say that is that what we are trying to achieve here is a financial return alongside measurable non-financial impact. And it tends to be relatively straightforward and well understood how we measure and disclose financial impact. It's much more complicated um, when we come to looking at non-financial impact, the sustainability impact of a business, for example, whether that be in biodiversity or water or carbon, or for example, some of the social factors in governance of a company. And that's where I think um, transparency is really key because there's, a, there's different stakeholders here. One is the relationship that we have with the company that we're investing in. So really good transparency in terms of what's happening in that company and how we can support them and making sure there's a good flow of information there. Then there's also the transparency between us and our investors who are looking to invest in a product that has this financial return alongside the measurable non-financial impact. So ensuring that we are reporting to them in an appropriate way. We, for example, um, also use external assurance to effectively audit our annual impact um, metrics for um, to ensure that the methodology is fit for purpose, etc. Um, I think the other part, obviously, is the broader stakeholder group. So we're investing in uh, private companies, um, but many uh, of the other activities in the economy will be enlisted companies that have multiple stakeholders involved in them as well. So uh, I think like all of the financially related activities around sustainability, transparency and the kind of integrity of the reporting that goes alongside that is going to be really key. And we hear a lot about the topic of kind of greenwashing, people passing off things that are not sustainable as being sustainable. Um, I think one of the ways of managing that or mitigating the risk of that is to ensure that there really is good transparency between the different players and they're using the right standards and approaches for reporting and there's some oversight of that. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And I um, like that even more because it, it fits with um, the... Um, uh, manifesto for, for Rethink, um, which is um, FAIR, F-A-I-R, so A stands for authenticity and uh, integrity and being honest and, and, uh, and open about what you're doing that's good and what you, know, what you haven't been able to resolve yet, but being upfront about that. Um, and so, um, Jamie, what would your top tip be for any business wanting to do a circular startup or to make its its existing business model more circular? Uh, yeah, so I think my sort of number one top tip would be to identify early on what it is about 
deploying this particular circular business model that creates a superior customer proposition or kind of product proposition. So if you can do that, that will anchor everything else that the business does and it will make it much easier to um, ensure that the company can kind of operate in that regard. So if I give you, a, I guess, an example of that, um, we have invested in a business called Grover based in Berlin that um, has a an alternative uh, kind of flexible rental model for technology ownership. So rather than buying uh, a camera or um, a piece of IT equipment like a tablet or a mobile phone or a scooter, you subscribe to Grover for as long as you need the product for. Once you've finished with it, it goes back to Grover, it gets refurbished and then goes out to multiple customers. Um, now, what they've been able to demonstrate with that business model is that it creates more value by getting a higher return on asset. And so that drives the very fundamentals of the business. Um, what that's then led to is the business kind of being able to grow very quickly, uh, initially in, in Germany and then expanding into Austria and the Netherlands. And now it's at a size where it's signed its first kind of major OEM contract with Samsung, who want to be able to deploy their some of their products on a product-as-a-service basis into the market and then get them back out again. Um, and, and we would see this kind of throughout the portfolio, typically, that if we have a business where the customer proposition is somehow superior, then that circular business model will grow faster and better. If we've got something where we think it's a fantastic idea for it to be circular, but there isn't any particular benefit to the customer, um, that can be very difficult to scale. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I must look up Grover and, uh, and find out more about them. That sounds like a, um, um, a, bus you know, a business that could go in all sorts of different directions. And I think it's also interesting to s that we're starting to see some of the big players partnering with these circular specialist providers, as I've um, called them. Um, and um, you know that gives them a good a good way to kind of you know pilot the future for this without um, undermining their existing business model. And um, you know what what other examples? Because we've not really talked about any of the companies that you've invested in. Um, so maybe you want to um, give a shout out to to one or two of those um, and let yeah. people know about them. Yeah, sure. So maybe just um, we were talking a little bit earlier about product from waste companies. Um, so we have also invested in a business um, which is headquartered in Denmark, but has um, plants or kind of manufacturing facilities in Belgium and in the US. And what they do is they take uh, what is currently a waste stream and convert that into a kind of differentiated high margin product, we would say. So they take... Um, laminated glass from car windscreens and buildings uh, and laminated glass has two layers of glass with a interlaminate layer of plastic to stop it from shattering if, under impact and that layer is called polyvinyl butyrol pvb uh, which is a very high performance um, non-toxic recyclable um, low voc um, polymer effectively so what shark are doing is they're extracting the PVB. They're also extracting the glass for resale. And the PVB is being sold into a number of customers. Um, so when we invested, it was into the flooring and carpet space where it's being used 
as an alternative to very unsustainable materials like PVC and bitumen by a number of the world's largest flooring companies included in, in cradle-to-cradle product applications. Um, and also, since we've invested, um, we've been working with the company to access some new industry segments, including paints and coatings and adhesives. And uh, we've just got our first contract for a large-scale paint um, supply contract, again, to kind of replace non-sustainable incumbent materials with a lower VAC content um, product. So that, that would be, um, I think, a really good example of a company where they're providing um, a material or a solution which is price competitive with the incumbents, but is much more sustainable. Um, so that's helping that company basically get into the right industry sectors now. Mm, yeah, and I think that brings up another one of the, um, the barriers to the circular economy, um, which is, you know, if, if you're a carpet company or a paint company or whatever, and you, you're looking at some of your more problematic materials and thinking, well, how am I going to replace that? It's how, how do you even find out, um, you know, that this recycled PVB, <laughs> PVB is available um, and why it's better and so on. It, it's kind of, um, at the moment, it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack, isn't it? There's no um, system that you can go to and just key in what you're looking for and get a list of all the alternatives, whether those are, you know, uh, renewable natural alternatives with different polymers or recycled or whatever. That's, that's what we kind of need is this, you know, massive um, materials database where you can, you can easily go and find out, you know, what, what can I use and where's the nearest supplier and how do I get in touch with them and so on. Um, I think that's exactly right, Catherine. And we, one of the kind of roles, I think, um, is to understand really well what the corporates are looking for and who those corporates are um, and then being able to flag these solutions to them. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of need, um, because I've been working with Circle Economy on their uh, Circle Lab Knowledge Hub um, to get some of the, because I've got 800 odd examples on my spreadsheet of stuff, you know, Circular Economy examples I've been collecting over the years. So trying to um, merge those into their database and, and um, help them curate their database. But we, you know, um, and it was uh, somebody from Google who said, um, you know, waste is a data problem, but we really need this massive industrial symbiosis model, don't we, where um, a company could post, you know, I need this, and somebody else can post, and I have this, and then the um, the AI and the machine learning and so on start to, starts to match it together. And maybe, um, you know, organisations like um, International Synergies and Excess Materials Exchange and, and those will, will crack the crack the code for, to you know to make that really scale up great stuff uh, and my last question Jamie is um, you know who would you recommend as a as a guest for the podcast somebody we could talk to to find out more about um, how to progress the circular economy yeah sure so I guess today we've been talking nuts and bolts of how we actually um, ensure that there's an opportunity for the businesses who are operating in the circular economy to get the right investment to help them to grow and scale and accelerate the circular economy. And also that there is an opportunity for asset owners and investors to have suitable product to be able to invest in this part of the economy. Um, so that's quite nuts and bolts. Um, I think what might be interesting if we take a completely different kind of look at the circular economy would be talk to someone like Ken Webster now, Ken Webster um, was formerly the head of innovation at the Alan MacArthur Foundation, 
um, and is now working with Exeter University with their new hub focusing on circular economy. Um, Ken is an incredibly uh, kind of fluid systems thinker. So he's thinking at the highest macro level of the system conditions. He's also uh, kind of very insightful in terms of how ideas spread and gain traction and how you keep ideas, kind of the purity of an idea there whilst they grow and mutate to an extent. And I think he would be a, a fascinating person to kind of bring into this discussion. Great stuff. Thank you, Jamie. Well, that's been, that's been brilliant. I've learnt loads. It's um, made me feel more enthusiastic about um, how we can help accelerate the circular economy in the right way um, and avoiding all those unintended consequences and greenwash and, <laughs> and all the rest of the things that um, you know we, we both are trying to, um, uh, to spot and weed out. So thank you very much for your time this morning um, and we'll put the links to Circularity Capital um, in the show notes if anybody wants to look those up um, and, um, and maybe we could include some of the, um, the businesses that we mentioned as well. Um, so thank you very much and um, I hope the fog lifts soon in, in Edinburgh and we get to see the spring sunshine. Thank you very much Catherine, thanks for the opportunity. Circularity Capital thinks the best investments are in the inner loops or where there's a differentiated or higher margin product output. For Shark Solutions, although that doesn't fit into the inner loop, it's recycling a complex niche product category, windscreens and toughened glass, to extract a difficult to recycle polymer. On top of that, the resulting recycled material has some in-demand features, such as low volatile organic compound levels, and that makes it desirable for customers looking to choose safer, more sustainable materials. It's good to learn that investors are becoming more aware of and more concerned about the problem of negative externalities not being priced into the system. Focusing on businesses that take full responsibility for the life cycles of their products and that ensure everything that leaves their system, including emissions, liquids, solid waste and so on, is either food for another process or the business is paying to clean it up and process it into new resources. I really liked Circularity Capital's theory of change approach, especially the process of thinking about unintended consequences and long-term risk factors. It's critical to examine the business model and ask whether it still holds up if the externalities from business as usual are priced in. For example, what if a key resource you're using has a negative value? In other words, you get paid to use the resource perhaps because otherwise the seller would have to pay for it to be disposed of. Let's look at paper cups as an example. You might be making a product out of discarded paper cups. What if the sale of paper cups is taxed, so companies swap to a different material or start to offer reusable cups? Or what if single-use cups were banned altogether? How would that affect your business model and the viability of your company? That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn.
If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular. <laughs>